Hey there, it's Nick again, and welcome to the Anamnesis podcast. Anamnesis is a podcast about medicine and history. And in this episode, I want to talk about heart disease and how a newly qualified doctor with a rebellious streak risked his life through self-experimentation to lay the cornerstones of a new field of medicine called interventional cardiology. Humans are living longer than ever before. In the developed world, it is now much less common to die from things like accidents or infectious disease. But everyone has to die of something. These days, a large proportion of people die from previously rare diseases, such as cardiovascular diseases, strokes, and cancers. Part of the problem is our new way of life, easy access to calorific foods and relatively sedentary lifestyles. One disease that almost everyone will have heard of is the heart attack, where the arteries to our heart get blocked off. This causes something called ischemia, which basically means that the heart muscle is being starved of oxygen. An infarction occurs when this muscle then dies from the lack of oxygen. The technical term for a heart attack is a myocardial infarction, or MI. Well, I think uh, ischemic heart disease is very important. Uh, And I suppose I grew up in the era where a lot of people died suddenly from heart attacks. And, And it does remain an important cause of death. Previously, heart attacks were a major cause of sudden death in middle-aged people. They were feared by many. This week, I've been talking to Dr Andrew Flapan, consultant cardiologist and former medical director for the Royal Infirmary of Edinburgh. These days, we have techniques that can unclog these arteries in an emergency, and can even be used to widen arteries of some people who get chest pain, or or angina, because the blood flow to their heart muscle is critically low due to the narrowing of the arteries. By the way, I'd just like to dwell on one thing that I think gets lost in translation when we talk about ischemic heart disease. Heart attacks are not generally caused by the progressive narrowing of arteries, but rather by the acute rupturing of the fatty plaques uh, in the vessels themselves that that cause the narrowing. The rupturing of these plaques essentially causes a a blood clot to form in the vessel, which completely blocks it off, and, and that's what a heart attack is. It's not the angina that kills you, that you have a progressive narrowing that gets a little bit worse each week. The thing that kills you is the sudden rupture of an atheromatous plaque, occluding the coronary artery, causing a myocardial infarction, causing an arrhythmia. Anyway, the treatment that we deliver these days is all done through a tiny cut in either the wrist or the groin. It has become a standard of care in many modern countries. This technique is called percutaneous coronary intervention, or PCI. Well, it's huge, Uh, and it's huge for many reasons. There's one because uh, for patients with uh, angina and for patients with acute myocardial infarction, uh, where they're in pain, they're sweaty, uh, they've got SD elevation, it's a very powerful treatment. It relieves the symptoms, it makes them feel better, Uh, almost immediately, and in the long run it reduces the chances uh, for them to develop cardiac failure and uh, with that recurrent arrhythmia and death. PCI and many similar techniques are all part of what is called interventional cardiology, and its existence can be traced all the way back to one headstrong junior doctor who had the conviction to ignore his boss and risk his life to prove that this type of technique was not only possible, but safe. Werner Forsman graduated from medical school in Berlin in 1928. He initially tried to be a physician and applied for many residency posts early on. Unfortunately, he was turned down by all of them. Through a lucky family connection, he was given the chance to study surgery in a small hospital in Eberswalde under the tutelage of Dr. Richard Schneider. Now, Forsman was a diligent worker and spent much of his time in personal study. 
He soon came across a photograph in a journal of physiology of a man passing a tube into the still-beating heart of a horse in order to measure the pressures inside it. He was immediately convinced that if this could be done in humans, it would lead to a novel way to deliver medicines directly to the heart. He spent his time devising a detailed plan on how he could reach the heart via one of the veins in his arm. He discussed his plan with the chief and asked for permission to experiment on a live human himself, but was quickly rejected. This technique had not been properly tested on animal models and there was no evidence that it would be feasible or even safe to do in humans. You see, the heart is made up of sensitive tissue and the worry is that if you were to agitate it in any way, it could cause abnormal heart rhythms or even stop altogether. Never one to be disheartened, Forsman began to discuss his plans with one of the operating room nurses, Goethe Ditson. Now she was in charge of all the sterile equipment in the operating theatres, and would therefore be able to get Forsman the tools he would require. After weeks of persuading, she eventually agreed to help him, on one condition, that she would be the first test subject. One summer's day in 1929, Forsman and Ditson snuck into an empty operating room. Werner was planning on doing the procedure under local anaesthetic. He told Gerda that he didn't want her to faint during the procedure and said that it would be safer to have her secured on the operating table. She agreed and he strapped her down. He then proceeded to pretend to inject the local anaesthetic into her left arm whilst actually doing it on himself. By the time she realised his trick, it was too late. Forsman had inserted a ureteric catheter, a device normally used for surgery on the urinary system, 30 centimetres into his arm. He then freed her and ordered her to inform the radiology department that they would be arriving shortly. Werner and Gerda walked down the flight of stairs to the radiology department. She, red-faced with anger at his deception, he, with a long length of sterile tubing sticking out of his arm. Once in the x-ray room, Forsman inserted the catheter a further 30 centimetres under x-ray guidance, all the way into the right atrium of his heart. He then took another x-ray to prove its positioning and called his boss. The chief, although initially quite rightfully annoyed, saw the achievement for what it was, a chance to forward medical science. He gave Forsman his blessing to continue with his experimentation. Given the perceived and actual risks of the procedure, I asked Dr. Flapan whether he might have tried th this unproven technique on himself if he were in Forsman's shoes. I'm a cautious man uh, by nature, and um, uh, I might not have done it, been the first person to do it. But there are a couple of things, as soon as you watch people do it or you work with people doing it, that you begin to learn very quickly. Is First of all, if people are competent, it is very, very safe. So the perception is that lots and lots of things can go wrong, and that is true. But the technique is so refined that it is very, very, very safe. And you learn certain things, and I don't know if it's true or not, but it's what you begin to believe, that blood vessels are quite sensitive but they're not sensitive on the inside because the danger always comes from outside so once you're in a blood vessel once you're in the middle of the blood vessel it's not painful to pass things along as long as you you know you're cautious and uh, as long as you follow a technique and you take a wire uh, that has a floppy soft tip you're very very unlikely to damage things so I don't think I would have been the first to do it but I might have been there um, in the second uh, a run of people doing it. Forsman would continue his work on cardiac catheterization throughout his placement at Irvaswalda, but his lack of adequate reverence for protocol and chain of command would land him in trouble throughout the years. Multiple times he would be dismissed for not informing seniors about his work, 
or for unsubstantiated feelings that his technique was unsafe. This would eventually wear him down, and he put thoughts of cardiac catheterization to the back of his mind. He eventually trained to become a urologist. Although Forsman had given up on the idea of cardiac catheterization, he had ignited a fire the day he inserted a catheter into his arm. Scientists and clinicians from around the world had heard of his work and diligently kept the embers of his technique alive. Now, long after the Second World War, in October 1956, Forsman was a respected urologist in his local hospital. He had just finished a morning surgical list when his medical director entered the operating room. To Werner Forsman's great surprise, he informed him that he had just been awarded the 1956 Nobel Prize in Medicine and Physiology for his work on cardiac catheterization, along with two Americans, Andre Cornand and Dixon Richards, who had fostered this knowledge and grown it into a respectable field. Over the next few decades, the new field of interventional cardiology blossomed. In the mid-1950s, Seldinger perfected his now-famous technique of introducing equipment into the body. He used fine wires called guide wires that allowed larger tubes to be railroaded along them safely into blood vessels and other areas. In 1959, the first selective coronary angiograms were taken, where clinicians were able to take images of specific blood vessels supplying the heart by injecting dye down them and taking x-rays. And in 1970, the Swan-Gantz catheter was invented. It's a device that sits in the right heart and allows accurate measurements of cardiac output and important pressures that tell you how well the heart is able to pump. It's still used during some major surgeries and in some intensive care units around the world. As you may have gathered, most of the early advances focused on using direct access to the heart to obtain information by measuring things. How blocked are the arteries? Is the heart pumping well? But these days the focus is much more in line with Forsman's original goal, treatment. How can we intervene in cardiac disease? Various advancements occurred and new technology was developed that allow us first to remove blockages from the heart's arteries and then to stent them open. If anybody you know has had a procedure for a heart attack or for angina, chances are that it was some form of stent. This is the PCI that we talked about briefly earlier. Here's Dr. Flapan again, describing the modern day technique of PCI. Well, the first thing you have to do is get access to the circulation. And which artery you use, uh, the technique's the same. It's the Seldinger technique, which is very straightforward. You puncture the artery with a needle. And you know that you've gained access to the artery because you see oxygenated bright orange arterial blood and there's a pulsation to it. And then you know that you're in the lumen of the artery. A lumen is just a technical term for the inside cavity of a tube. And then through that needle, you pass a wire, a long wire, quite long. And then you have a wire that goes from the outside through the needle into the inside of the artery. And if you take the needle off, just pull the needle out, but leave the wire in, that's very important. You then have a wire that runs from the inside of an artery to the outside uh, environment. And then over that, you can pass tubes and all sorts of things. And then you have a communication between the outside and the inside of arteries. And because all arteries come from the heart, and if you're uh, reasonably sensible and uh, have a little bit of uh, dexterity, you can pass wires and tubes up to the heart and the coronary arteries. It's as, it's as simple as that. Once your tubes or devices are at the coronary arteries, you can do a few things. You can inject dye to see how blocked the vessels are. 
You can then insert a wire down into any blockages and inflate a small balloon to open up this blockage. That's called angioplasty. These days, most people would then insert a tubular metal cage called a stent. This props open the vessel and stops it from closing down on itself again. Stents generally last a very long time and can even come impregnated with certain drugs that help prevent clot formation. These are called drug-eluting stents. PCI is now an extremely common technique to treat both heart attacks and people who have angina from narrow coronary vessels. I asked Dr. Flapan how many he does in a year. Edinburgh runs at around uh, over 2,000. Some are very complex. Um, I think I hit my peak a few years ago when I did something like 350. Before PCI, people with heart disease would have to undergo cardiac bypass surgery, which is a much more dangerous operation and involves actually cracking open the chest to stitch on extra bits of blood vessel to literally bypass the blockages. This is called a coronary artery bypass graft, or CABG. It's also affectionately called a cabbage. And it's still used in people today with heart disease that for one reason or another is not amenable to current PCI techniques. But interventional cardiology is about so much more than ischemic heart disease these days. Today we can use high-intensity radio waves to locally ablate abnormal electrical connections in the heart to treat abnormal rhythms. And we can implant pacemakers for people whose hearts don't generate enough stable activity themselves. We can use cardiac catheterization to repair holes in the heart with minimal invasiveness. We can even insert new valves into the hearts of people who aren't fit enough to have their valves repaired through open heart surgery. And we can do many procedures now that previously patients would have had surgery for. So that means we can treat a lot of old, frail people and make their lives better and relieve their symptoms. And that's a very worthwhile thing to do. A newer technique that is gaining more and more traction is a way to replace the aortic valve in patients who would un otherwise be unfit for an operation. This is called transcutaneous aortic valve implantation, or TAVI. And then transcutaneous aortic valve implantation became available. That's a really fantastic treatment. For patients who have cardiac failure due to aortic stenosis, a disease of elderly people, uh, it's a wonderful treatment. It improves their symptoms and probably makes them live longer. But these folk are quite elderly, so that's usually of secondary importance to them. They want to be independent and active and free from symptoms. Like PCI versus its open heart surgery cousin, TAVI is associated with vastly improved recovery times over open aortic valve replacement. The procedure takes an hour. It's a massive procedure. Um, it's not without risk, but the patient will recover in 24, 48 hours. And if they really have severe aortic stenosis limiting their lives, they will come in in an ambulance and they will go home on a bus on two, three days later. It's a fantastic treatment. So we do them here, just how it works out on a Friday and the patient goes home on a Monday. But these are people who, who are frail. They are frail. So, And, you know, if you imagine you're 82 and you've got severe aortic stenosis and uh, you have an operation, you'll spend six months, almost a year, recovering. At 82, you've not got a huge amount of life left. So if you can have something where the recovery time is 24, 48, 72 hours, that's a, a massive benefit. Interventional cardiology has come a long way from its humble beginnings. We are now able to do more to intervene and help patients than ever before. We are treating people who were previously too frail to be treated, 
and the variety of techniques that are available to us continues to grow. To end, I asked Dr. Flappan about his thoughts of the future of interventional cardiology. So we have come very close to the peak in angioplasty. There are more and more people with angina we can treat by uh, angioplasty. Uh, but as angina becomes uh, slightly less of a problem because of the way we manage uh, acute myocardial infarction, I think that's more or less at its peak. I think aortic valve replacement will more and more for older patients, people from in their late 70s, early 80s, I think that will become a cardiological procedure and the surgeons uh, will only be replacing valves of younger people and those who need additional coronary artery bypass grafting. And the mitral valve will be the next big challenge. Can we replace the mitral valve percutaneously? And there are valves being developed, there are procedures being developed, but I probably won't see those in my lifetime. Well, in my lifetime I'll see them, but not in my professional career. Well, that's it. Um, so thanks once again for listening. Um, and a big thank you to Dr. Andrew Flappan for giving up his time to have a chat with me. Um, I've got uh, plenty of extra recordings of him with uh, his views on striking a balance between invasive treatments and medical prevention of diseases, as well as ensuring that we're delivering treatments for the right reasons. Um, I'll see if I can release an add-on episode somewhere, sometime on the website um, with that content in it. As always, if you've enjoyed this episode, please leave us a rating on iTunes uh, and recommend us to your friends and family that might be interested. Um, you can follow us on Twitter at AnamnesisCast or uh, find the show notes on our website, anamnesiscast.com. That's A-N-A-M-N-E-S-I-S, cast.com. Um, yeah, thank you for listening, and I'll talk to you guys next time.